Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, back here again with you. And you all know that every week I strive to do nothing but bring you the very best in apologetics and scholarship. And I hold the highest standards, making sure I bring on my best. But this week I was in a bind, so I had my friend Kurt Gerald come back here on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about him. He's a director of operations at Apologetics.com, a charitable organization that challenges believers to think and thinkers to believe. He is currently a PhD student at Highland Theological College in Dingwa, Scotland. He is doctoral dissertation where we'll look at the doctrine of original sin and the writings of monks from several friends in the 5th and 6th century. He holds two master's degrees in Christian apologetics from Biola University in Systematic Theology from King's College, London. He likes systematic and historical theology, philosophy of religion, and issues in Christian pop culture. Additionally, he enjoys political philosophy, economics, American political history, and campaigns. He currently resides in the suburbs of Chicago with his lovely wife and daughter. So, Kurt, welcome back once again to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure that we were in such a bond, but we had. To, I mean, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you back here again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The last time I was on here was, uh, ooh, what, maybe a year and a half ago? It, maybe two, I, two years? I think it was in May of last year, and that was right before the Unbelievable Conference. Ah, that's right, and that was before I uh, I joined Apologetics.com. That was when I was still uh, still had real clear apologetics. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Oh, sure. Let's see. Well, there are a lot of things going on uh, in my life. Uh, the, the most exciting thing out of all the things I'm doing is that I'm now a father. Mm -hmm. uh, my uh, daughter, Eleanor, is, uh, let's see now, nine, uh, almost ten months old. Uh, and um, she's just a great joy uh, to me and my wife. And uh, So that's been the most exciting thing. Uh, the, the other things that I'm doing that will hopefully uh, make money someday or currently help make money right now, <laughs> uh, I'm the director of operations at apologetics.com, which is a, an apologetics ministry uh, based in Southern California in Los Angeles. Uh, but uh, how is it that I could work in Los, for an organization in Los Angeles and do a PhD program in Scotland but live in the suburbs of Chicago? Well, that's, that's the beauty of the internet. Uh, I can do a lot of telecommuting, if you will. Uh, I can do a lot of research online and at the, uh, the local Christian college library. I live about uh, 10 minutes from Wheaton College. Mm. And so the work with apologetics.com is largely online. Uh, and uh, so it's a blessing that I can uh, be living pretty much anywhere and be doing the, the work that I want to be doing. Uh, so uh, how I came in touch with Apologetics.com, since you and I last talked on the show here, uh, I had uh, met someone, uh, Richard Park, who was with the organization, and uh, he and I connected very well, and one thing led to another, and uh, there was a uh, merger of sorts between the ministry I had started, Real Clear Apologetics, and Apologetics.com, and basically I, I joined their uh, ministry, and uh, I shared a lot of the same vision with the uh, the president, uh, Harry Edwards. Mm -hmm. And so one of those things that uh, transpired was that Real Clear Apologetics 
was kind of rebranded, and so now it's uh, now it's called social.apologetics.com, and it's just a social networking site for anybody interested in Christian apologetics. So, uh, so that's how the connection happened with apologetics.com. Mm-hmm. And then to cover the point on my PhD program, I was just looking around for various um, distance learning programs uh, just to suit my situation in life. And with uh, a, with a research uh, degree, like the PhD, uh, it's, it's just all based on your own research. You're just writing your dissertation. So now that's the case for programs in the UK. In the States... Uh, PhD programs are longer. They're like three to four years of coursework, and then then you do your dissertation. So I was looking for programs in the UK, and uh, there's a mantra for students in theology to go where the money is, and uh, the school offered me a, a scholarship, and so I decided, well, that's that's the route I'll go with. So mm-hmm. <laughs> so that it became a simple decision after that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you're doing a lot of work on original sin. For my audience, you might not know, what exactly is meant by original sin? That is a great question, and that is a question that uh, I'm even asking myself. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us today, we, um, we use terms to describe ideas, and oftentimes, uh, today, for a lot of evangelicals, we can use this term, original sin, but we don't define it or describe what we mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this becomes really important when trying to figure these issues out about what the Bible is really telling us. Mm -hmm. Now, broadly speaking, original sin refers to the original sin or the first sin, the sin that uh, really Eve was technically first, according to the, uh, the story we read about, but uh, really, we just focus on Adam and Adam's action of sinning. Mm-hmm. So really, the question of original sin is, what has Adam passed on to us? What effects uh, took place because of the fall? And so there are a number of uh, sub-beliefs in original sin. This is, this is something that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, but there's, there's a very good uh, article that appeared in a journal called Augustinian Studies, written by a fellow named Jesse Kuhnhoven. Uh, that's how I pronounce his last name. And he, he makes this wonderful note. He writes uh, that what we call Augustine's or Augustine's doctrine of original sin is actually a handful of doctrines, some more closely related than others, but each capable of independence and possibly in tension with the other. So I think that's really important because I, from where I sit, I can think of a, a few what we may call sub-tenets of original sin. And some of those various sub-doctrines are really where we begin to see who believes what. Um, and I don't know if we'll, we'll get into it more on this show, but, um, but some of those topics, for example, are like inherited guilt. Do we inherit the guilt of Adam's sin? Uh, for a lot of uh, people uh, that are broadly evangelical, uh, people in, out of the Methodist heritage uh, who have a robust understanding of free will, uh, we would say, no, we don't inherit the guilt of Adam. 
But for others that uh, follow more strictly in line with Augustinian theology, uh, such as Reformed, you know, Calvinists, they would definitely say, yes, absolutely, we do inherit the guilt of Adam. Mm-hmm. So, so inherited guilt is one of those. Uh, another aspect is mortality. Uh, this point wouldn't be as controversial, the idea that, well, uh, the fall caused physical death uh, to all humans. Uh, and uh, other issues are just, that, you know, is it is it possible for a human to do uh, an act of goodness, tr- a, a true act of goodness, or are humans only and always sinning? Uh, so so the, those, I just mentioned three there, but there are others uh, that really can uh, be part of the finer points of the doctrine of original sin. Mm-hmm. You know, I can already see some questions that can be asked because of this. For instance, when you were talking about whether we all inherit Adam's guilt or not, someone would say, you know, if, if that was the case, what would that mean, for instance, for a, a child, for instance, who, who dies shortly after their birth? Does that mean they've got Adam's guilt stuck on them, so they're yeah. like, eternally in hell because of it? So, uh, this is a very fascinating question, and uh, there's a great book. It's a quick read. Uh, the, the book is written by a fellow named Adam Harwood. And uh, he teaches at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. He's written a book called The Spiritual Condition of Infants, a Biblical Historical Survey and Systematic Proposal. So he really deals with this question uh, just on its own, uh, what the spiritual condition of infants are and do they acquire the guilt of Adam. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, <clears throat> so for those that think humans do acquire or inherit, or uh, some would say are imputed with the guilt of Adam, this seems to be a difficulty uh, that goes against our intuitions. Our our, our intuitions being that babies have not sinned, they have not committed uh, a transgression, and thus they shouldn't be uh, considered guilty. But if they inherit the guilt of Adam, it seems that they deserve hell. So um, this is a difficulty, and uh, traditionally the, the most vocal advocates of that view would be Calvinists, saying that even infants are guilty of Adam's sin, uh, but, not, but not exclusive to them. And the way they would try and get around it is by saying they would, there's a couple options. One of the most popular ones is simply that God has elected uh, all of the infants, uh, to be saved. So, uh, there's a big problem with this, though, and it's simply that they can't ground that belief. There's troubles enough, I think, on Calvinism for uh, the idea of God predetermining individuals for eternal salvation. Mm-hmm. My own view is that the scripture doesn't teach that. And so, how can we know that the infants? are chosen or were chosen we don't it's just a hope it's a wish it's speculation so there isn't an assurance that infants won't be in hell and now some calvinists are um, more upfront and honest about this very difficult position so like wayne grudem he he's (laughs) at least willing to concede yes there, there will be some infants in hell 
So uh, it, that does pose a difficulty uh, if it's true. However, I don't think we do inherit the guilt of Adam. And so uh, I don't think that infants are uh, bound to hell. And rather, I think that they will have everlasting life. So that, that doesn't pose a difficulty from my position. <laughs> I think Ron Nash was concerned about the idea that that babies were going to own hair as wearing. He he was against that thing. He wrote a little piece called "When a Baby Dies." Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, there, there is a lot out there uh, on uh, people who recognize uh, our intuitions, and we want to think that our intuitions are correct, and yet they also have these other theological beliefs. So they're trying to figure out how it is that that could be the case, that, uh, that the two would be compatible with each other. Okay, so. Kurt, let's suppose you had a family here, and they came to you years after this happened, and we said that uh, years ago we lost a child to a disease while they were still an infant, and in our searching after that, trying to make sense of everything, we found God and we became Christians, so we can say this couple they weren't Christians when they had this kid then. Yeah. And now the only question we keep asking ourselves is, are we going to see a baby in heaven someday? Yeah. What would you say to them? Well, well let, let me, me first tell you what, what, I, what, I, what I wouldn't say. say. <laughs> um, a number of people who do believe in inherited guilt, they, they think that only the children of Christians will be saved. And so they would say that the children of non-believers that die won't be saved. So I definitely wouldn't tell them that that's my view, because the fact of the matter is that it's not. I, I do believe that children of non-believers, uh, that those children will be saved, because I don't consider uh, those babies as being guilty. They haven't committed a transgression. They haven't uh, broken the law, if you will, in Old Testament terms. And uh, that's why I don't think, not, not only do they not have personal guilt, which even Reformed uh, thinkers concede, but they don't have inherited guilt. Uh, so I don't see, uh, I don't think the scripture teaches that those babies then are condemned. So I think those, uh, in your hypothetical, those newly converted parents will see their infant in the afterlife. Okay, well, I can picture someone who would, in a sense, who's not exactly friendly to Christians, saying, well, geez, Kurt, if you believe that these babies are going to go to heaven regardless, you should really be for abortion, then, because, hey, that's just sending children to heaven right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting uh, proposal. <laughs> I think that <clears throat> that question uh, misses some of the major priorities about uh the great benefits and joys to actually living life here on earth and the great benefit uh, that humans can uh, be to one another to help each other out. Uh, so I don't see that that idea would work too well. That, that reminds me of the, uh, uh, I think there were some medieval monks who used to, you know, wish death upon themselves because it would be, the afterlife would be better than the, the present state. And I'm just not convinced of that. I think that there are great benefits here to being alive and uh, to telling others of the good news. I mean, imagine if all the Christians decided, hey, the afterlife's going to be better, so let's just all kill ourselves. 
No, I don't think it works like that. (laughs) That's obviously not what God wants us to do. (laughs) We were talking about the effects of sin as well. This gets into free will quite a bit, Uh doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, As I had mentioned, one of the sub-doctrines of original sin is this idea that that non-believers are only and always sinning. Now, there are a lot of Reformed people who want to shy away from this. And they want to say that, um, no, non-believers can do good things. But, but really, I think they're being inconsistent here. And um, I think what they're trying to say is potentially two things. It's two things. Uh, the first is this. They would say, or they could say that when we when a non-believer performs a good action, that that's part of God's common grace mm-hmm. doing it. Uh, and that, so it's only if God performs some super added act of grace or an extra act of grace to what's already been given that the non-believer can perform an objectively good act. So on this first view, there's still a problem. Because the non-believer who doesn't receive any sort of common grace uh, left to himself couldn't do any good. And I think that's problematic. But before I get into that, let me pose the second horn here. So the second option that they could say is, uh, is what Edwin Palmer advocates. He wrote this book called The Five Points of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And, and in there, he kind of, he writes this. Let me read you some, something he wrote. So, not only is it true that the unregenerate does not commit sins in the worst possible way, or all sorts of sins, but it is also true that he is capable of doing a certain amount of good. If you rightly understand the word good. And so what does Palmer mean here, if we rightly understand the word good? Well, for Palmer and other Calvinists, good is merely a loose term. And, and in fact, according to Palmer and others, any good act performed by a non-believer is not actually a good act, since it's not done, Palmer writes, for, done from a true faith or to the glory of God. So this, this idea of a good is, uh, Palmer writes, that, that relative good is basically, in the deepest sense, nothing else than sin and evil. So... For these two views, the non-believer or the unregenerate man, uh, human, uh, does not and cannot do anything good. So it's interesting when I kind of phrase it that humans, uh, that one of the issues for free will and original sin is that humans are only and always sinning. That is, they don't have the free will to do good of their own accord. The Calvinists really believe that uh, that unregenerate, natural man is only and always sinning. Uh, now, I think this is problematic for a number of reasons, and um, but this this issue can get a little tricky, I must say, because many Protestants, even Methodists, for example, have a notion of prevenient grace, whereas on my view, and uh, and if I'm not mistaken, this is the view of the monks that I'll be studying. 
It's that the fall simply did not affect humans to the extent that a lot of the Western views believe. So the view I have on the fall and the, the effects is very Eastern. Uh, if we, you look at the Greek church fathers, the early church fathers, uh, they, they had a robust notion of free will, and, uh, but, but they didn't separate nature from grace. And this is something we see in the West. We, we see a separation between nature and grace. That is, if man naturally does something, it's not by the grace of God. And the Eastern views wouldn't say that. They would say that even uh, if man performs some action, it's because of the grace of God. So maybe we could call it something like the grace given at creation uh, and that the fall simply didn't affect humans to the same extent that many people in the West, especially Reformed and Augustinians, uh, think. Mm -hmm. So I know this can be quite controversial, and uh, it's so controversial, in fact, that let me uh, let me speak a little bit about the monks that I'll be talk that I'll be uh, researching and writing on. Uh, the the monks from the fifth and sixth century. I like to phrase it that way, because there's a what I'll call a pejorative term to label these thinkers. And the term out there is called semi-Pelagianism. Mm -hmm. And if you go and look up what semi-Pelagianism is, for example, I'm sure you could use the great Wikipedia <laughs> or uh, the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Mm -hmm. You'll read about these semi-Pelagians and you'll be told something like this, that these monks believed that man could perform some act, uh, a good act, or could do something toward their own salvation, mm -hmm. devoid of the grace of God. Mm -hmm. And that's the key phrase, devoid of the grace of God. The difficulty for that is this. Those monks of the 5th and 6th century that were neither Pelagians, in fact, they wrote against Pelagianism, and they were neither Augustinians because they wrote against what uh, a number of Augustine's writings, they did not believe that man could do something devoid of the grace of God or take the first step without God's grace. To the contrary, they believed that God's grace was necessary. Uh, so there's really a big historic straw man of these writers of the 5th and 6th century that lived in southern France. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, I think, problematic when we don't, first of all, when we don't get our history right. You know, we need to be charitable when trying to understand what someone's saying and mm -hmm. what they believe before we can really critique it. I don't, I'm pretty sure you and I would see eye to eye on that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so then when it comes to these so-called semi-Pelagians, how about we go and read the, the primary sources to see what they really believed about this? Oh, jeez, that's such an outdated idea. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, well, and interestingly enough, a number of these guys, John Cashin is the biggest name or, or most recognizable name mm -hmm. of this. Uh, and a lot of his writings weren't translated into English until the 1980s. So it's only been a, a recent thing that we could read this in English. So... Uh, 
Yeah, I think there's just been a big problem with understanding um, what the so-called semi-Pelagians believed. And the term semi-Pelagian was a very uh, uh, medieval or late medieval notion. And it was a label given a thousand years after the fact to these guys. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, it's quite anachronistic. I mean, they were, if they were semi-Pelagian, they were also semi-Augustinian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while at the same time it would still be improper to call them either of those because they were anti-Pelagian and anti-Augustinian. <laughs> if you believe in free will, however, and then if we are born sinners, doesn't that kind of contradict things with free will? How can we be free and yet we are sin? Good, good. So, um... Yeah, and thanks for bringing it back to free will, too. Um, On my understanding, humans have inherited some things from the fall. Um, And and one of these is that we've we've inherited a fallen human nature. And the word fallen uh, is a a term that we do see a lot in the Greek church fathers. Mm -hmm. And this is... Uh, how, how they would describe it, that we've fallen from the previous state, and that is the state prior to the fall, right? Um, and some people want to use the word corrupted, and I think I'd be okay with that term, but I want to um, make sure it's nuanced uh, finally, uh, because I think that can carry some connotation that I wouldn't agree with. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, we are, we are broken humans, mm-hmm. and... That's not to say, though, to your question, that that we can't do anything good. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because something's broken doesn't mean that it fails to function at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, something can be broken but still do good things. Yeah. Just consider a machine, for instance. Now, I'm not saying humans are machines, but right, this is just an analogy. A machine can still perform good things and put out good products even if it's broken in some sense. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that if we uh, inherit a fallen human nature that we, can, that we are unable to do anything good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't see how those two would be incompatible. But now for those that have a more severe view, if you will, of the nature of man, they very might well say that, that yeah, that's right, humans don't have free will. Or, uh, now when I use the term free will, I, I identify with the philosophical camp of libertarianism. Now, I'm not using that term in the political sense in this context. I'm using the term in the, the philosophical debates about freedom and determinism. So, some people who may deny freedom may deny freedom in the libertarian sense, but uh, there are Let's Those. be clear for you. What do you mean by freedom in the libertarian sense? Yeah, so often this is, um, uh, it's often summarized in a nutshell as the ability to do otherwise. Okay. Now, that's not the only definition out there. There are some other thinkers who still identify as libertarians and pose very nuanced definitions. Um, but that's roughly how I've understood. Uh, libertarian thought on free will. Mm-hmm. But now there, there could be compatibilists, people who say, yes, we do have free will, 
but they redefine free will, and you especially see this with Calvinists that identify as compatibilists. They redefine it to mean that you are free to do what your nature can do. And now Calvinists have a severe view of uh, the nature of man, and so they would say because your nature only desires to do evil, that you can you are free only to do evil. You are free only to sin. You are not free to do good. So on my understanding of free will, the individual is not free at all. There is no ability to do otherwise. You couldn't, if given an option between a good action and an evil action, according to the, compat the Calvinist compatibilists, you would, you would pick the evil action every time. Mm -hmm. So I know I may get some beef, some compatibilists may disagree with me there, but ultimately I, th I think that's what their position uh, has to consistently hold. <laughs> now, if people are, are born sinners, where as good Christians we believe that Jesus was fully human, so if Jesus was born fully human, then wouldn't he have to be a sinner? And if Jesus is a member of a trinity, wouldn't that make God a sinner as well? Ah, uh, wow, this is, <laughs> this is a great question. Um, and this can be a very tricky question, too. Uh, there is a debate, uh, and some, you see this debate between the East and the West, almost, about the type of human nature that uh, Jesus took upon himself. Um, now, at, at the very least, I want to say this. When I say that humans inherit a fallen nature, I don't want to say that, that humans are sinners prior to any transgression. On, on my view, I want to say that they become sinners once they sin. And even though a person can have a fallen human nature, that doesn't constitute them as a sinner. I know a lot of people disagree with me on that uh, there, but this, is, this, could, this view is advocated uh, a lot in Wesleyan circles, this idea of the age of accountability. Uh, so with regard to Jesus, I wouldn't say that Jesus would be considered a sinner, even though he had a fallen human nature. Uh, <laughs> and this, this debate can get quite interesting about if Jesus had the live option of actually sinning, you know, the temptations, were they sincere temptations? And, uh, and I, I want to say uh, that though Jesus was tempted, he... Uh, he uh, did not have the ability to sin. Uh, I don't want to say that. So, and oh, on that point, let me clarify this with libertarian freedom. I don't think that freedom goes unbound. Uh, it's not this. It's not that humans have almost like an exhaustive sense of freedom. Uh, there are limitations to our freedom. We have we are limited by our circumstances, by physical necessities. You know, we can't fly. Darn! I mean, we can fly if we go in airplanes, but, you know, as individuals, without any other aided things, we can't fly. Well, um, geez, and so, Kurt, thanks for, thanks for ruining my evening plans here. <laughs> so, I think a lot of non-libertarians have this sense that libertarians believe in sort of unrestricted freedom. But that's not the case. No, some people have more freedom than others. Even just think of like financial uh, differences uh, and what that brings for freedom. So, but as it pertains to 
our moral judgments. I do want to say that we do have libertarian freedom. So, so I hope that answers the question about um, Jesus. So I wouldn't deem that Jesus and God are sinners because Jesus inherited a fallen human nature. So I, I hope that can help clarify yeah, I'm that question. sure some people wondering about, well, what do you mean Jesus inherited a fallen human nature? Uh, right, so uh, as I had said, the Greek fathers, um, when they talked about the human nature, they, uh, that which was inherited, they mean fallen. And so by that, they just mean that it has fallen from the previous state. Now, some people, some of them describe this as paradise. Others don't want to use that term. Um, but just that uh, human nature now, because of the fall, is broken. And we have a propensity, a leaning to sin, and we do it a lot, and we see it all around us. The effects of uh, sin are universal in that sense, and uh, and this is this poses a, a big problem for humanity because we cannot save ourselves. Uh, we need a savior. We need a Messiah to save us from our own situation, and so then God implements Operation Rescue Plan, and uh, and <laughs> he comes and. Uh, he, he comes himself uh, to save us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I hope that helps about the idea of a fallen human nature, different than the human nature that Adam and Eve were created with. Uh, yeah. Would you include mortality as a result of a fall, or would you say that we had mortality before the fall? That is... A very controversial question, <laughs> and the reason why it's controversial is because you could get into views on the historical Adam here and uh, old Earth creationism versus young Earth creationism. And so, you know, if you hold to an old Earth creationist view, it seems to be the case that there was death prior to the fall. And now there are a number of uh, philosophers out there, the theologians out there, who talk about the retroactive uh, effect of the fall. So that, that way they still believe in historical Adam, but that the punishment existed prior to the fall. I'm not sure what I think of that. I haven't thought much about it, uh, to be honest. My own thinking on the matter has been to merely operate under the assumption that there was no death before the fall so i'm just i'm kind of operating on a young earth uh view here even though i wouldn't affirm that view myself interestingly interestingly enough so maybe someone would say well aren't you being inconsistent well for for my general purposes in my interest in original sin i want to see if we inherit the uh the guilt the sin of adam and so if I can show that even on a young earth view, just suppose that, you know, uh, that there was death uh, or that death didn't come until the fall, that if I can show that we don't inherit those uh, certain things like guilt, then I seem to be uh, in the clear as it pertains to the old earth view, because it seems on the old earth view, um, yeah, you'd, you'd have to have a, a different view of original sin. 
in fact, a number of Reformed theologians recognize this. And uh, uh, so, so one of those uh, is uh, uh, Anthony Hokema. And so he writes of uh, people who reject original sin, that, the, uh, that those people base their, this is his writing, those people that base their reinterpretation of the doctrine of original sin primarily on evidence from the natural sciences about the age of the earth, the age of man, the nature of primitive man, over against this method of interpreting scripture, the historic reformed position has been that the content of the Christian faith may not be determined by the results of natural science. Valuable though these results may be, but must be drawn primarily from the Bible itself. So basically he's saying that the Bible trumps science. And um, I don't wanna, uh, I agree with him there in that sense that the authority of the authority of the scripture, however, However, I don't want to um, reject the science as a legitimate uh, avenue for knowledge. Mm -hmm. And this is what we see, I think, with, uh, with uh, Ken Ham, for instance, with Answers in Genesis. I think, uh, at least from my perspective, you begin to see almost a reinterpretation of the science, uh, the scientific uh, consensus. <clears throat> um, and that's not to say that I'm advocating Darwinian evolution here. So I, I would identify with the intelligent design movement and they uh, deal with the scientific facts. Whereas I, with uh, the young earth view, I tend to see more of a reinterpretation, if you will, uh, in light of other uh, biblical interpretations of the scripture. So, and I don't think those interpretations are necessitated. So for instance, um, one thing I've been thinking about, when God commanded them not to eat of the fruit, uh, for the day that they do, they will surely die. Well, if we keep reading the story, we see, well, that day they didn't die. Now, uh, some Reformed uh, folk like Wayne Grudem would say, oh, well, that's because God extended his uh, mercy and grace toward Adam and Eve and allowed them to live longer. He didn't, and that's why he didn't kill them right away. Well, the scripture doesn't say that. So that's uh, an attempt to understand why it is that they didn't die. But now there's one other, at least one other logical possibility. And that's that when God said the day that you'd even eat of it, you would surely die. He wasn't talking about physical death, but rather spiritual death. And we do see that the day that they ate of it, they were spiritually separated from the presence of God. And that's spiritual death. So uh, I suppose to get way back to the question about mortality, I would ask a question of the questioner and say, how do you know that the scripture teaches that there was not mortality prior to the fall? And I don't think the scripture does. If we're, if we're going to stick with the text, looking at the text closely, I don't think that that assumption is warranted. It's interesting that you talk about retroactive punishment and the intelligent design miracles. Both both together made me think of William Dimsky's book, The End of Christianity, which right. takes uh -huh. some of, Have you read it? And if so, what did you think about it? Okay, so I haven't read it. I really should. Uh, part of the things I've been uh, reading and thinking about, 
have been about just the doctrine right now, the doctrine of original sin, uh, biblical texts such as Romans 5, uh, verse 12. That's, that's the big one. That's the big honcho on this. And uh, looking at these various thinkers, um, uh, not only uh, the ancient guys, but contemporary work on this. So, but some of the contemporary work that I haven't been reading is on uh, this idea that, you know, on a theistic evolution view or on a intelligent design view, how is it that we can uh, still believe in original sin or that evil existed prior to the fall? That, that is something I am interested in looking at and thinking about, but I'm afraid that's, uh, and I recognize that there are implications for what I am writing on. But that's something I probably won't get into for a few years still. <laughs> but it's interesting because a lot of the top scholars, they're really starting to touch on this. Um, and I think some of that's just because of the, uh, the, the progress that uh, intelligent design or theistic evolution has made in evangelical Christian uh, So our thinkers are kind of forced to deal with this stuff. Uh, and I'm not there yet. <laughs> well, if this does get into whatever topic was with the problem of evil, which mm -hmm. that's exactly why Dembski wrote the book to deal with the problem of evil. Yeah, yeah. right. And yeah, for me, honestly, this hasn't usually been an issue. And I understand this for some people, but the problem of evil has never really frustrated me, but it does for some people. Why do you think that is? Yeah, uh, well, I, I would sympathize with uh, your disposition. It hasn't posed uh, an issue for me uh, much much at all. Um, but like you said, uh, there are people that this really hits home. So why does it really uh, bother people? Why is it really a problem? Well, I would say that for the people where we really see that it's a problem, the intellectual objections posed are often a mask. Mm -hmm. So, for, for example, people may posit the logical problem of evil that, uh, you know, the existence of God and the existence of evil are incompatible. And so, uh, planning his famous work, uh, God, Freedom, and Evil, he really takes it to him and says <laughs> and proves uh, that those two can coexist. They are compatible. And a number of philosophers even grant this, even non-believers. And they say Plantinga has solved the logical problem of evil. Okay, well, what about the person then? Uh, he follows up and says, well, there's just so much evil in the world that it's improbable that God exists. Well, this is the evidential problem of evil. Now, I won't go into this too much, at least not yet. And uh, But I think this, the evidential problem, begins to get closer to the real issue at stake. And the real issue at stake is uh, the emotional or religious problem of evil. This individual has experienced or knows someone who has experienced evil and suffering, and they've seen it. And uh, it becomes an experiential problem that hits home. And uh, we have a lot to learn uh, from the scriptures on this, especially the book of Job. Which, interestingly enough, was one of the few books John Calvin did not write a commentary on. <laughs> hmm. 
perhaps because, in my understanding, it doesn't fit very well with the Reformed view. Um, the problem of evil has been a problem for Calvinists, not just atheists, but Calvinists. Um, for those that are familiar with the literature, uh, this is something they've had to face. And, and I don't think they face it successfully. Um, so I, the reason why this is a problem, the problem of evil is a problem for people, I think, is because they've really experienced it. Uh, but, but it's not necessitated by experience. There are plenty of people who have experienced evil and suffering, and they don't, they're able to cope uh, with this, their situation. And a lot of people have various coping mechanisms, and um, and I'm I'm interested in some of those. Uh, so, so, you know, one of the the big coping mechanisms is this belief that it's all a part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. And uh, th this kind of worries me, I think. Uh, and you see this in a lot of classical theism that God had that God's kind of um, structuring the whole world that he either causes or allows every event to occur and this includes the evil and suffering and so I was um, I was speaking uh, let me tell a little story I was speaking at a church and uh, I was getting to know the pastor there some more and he had talked about his desire to pursue some graduate work but he kept he kept getting sick, and then he, you know when he'd get healthy, and he would get around and he'd think more about going back to school. He would get sick again, and so his his um, interpretation of these experiences was that God was telling him not to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. And I think his situation is quite typical of the way that many evangelicals cope with the problem of evil, and. Uh, it's that God is the one who is orchestrating these events. Mm -hmm. But the scripture doesn't seem to say that God wants you to get sick or even causes you to get sick. Rather, when we see the ministry of Jesus, he's healing the sick. And we even read in the book of Acts in a number of cases that sickness, is, and Jesus even says this, that sickness is a work of the devil. And attributes that to the spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I think we today also have a very scientific understanding of sickness, which is fine. I don't view that as incompatible with uh, thinking that spiritual dark forces are also causing sickness. But I, I think this, um, I think the coping mechanism of Christians mm -hmm. to the problem of evil. That God is, it's all part of God's plan. I think that's quite problematic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wouldn't recommend that coping mechanism. I think there are better ways we can think about the way the world is and why it is that we ourselves experience evil. When you were talking about what this pastor was saying, I was thinking about it. Yes, night my wife and I were talking along these same kinds of lines. We were heading home from an event. And I don't remember how we got started thinking about, talking about, but said, you know, I always notice that when people are, start trying to interpret reality around them to find out what God's saying, that it usually goes very well with what they're already wanting to do. And when someone tells me something like, well, I ask God that if I'm doing X wrong or if he wants me to do Y, 
then can he do Z or not do Z? And anytime mm -hmm. I hear something, I always want to ask, and did God tell you he was fine with that plan, or did you just assume he was fine with that plan? Yeah, maybe you could phrase that again for me. Sorry. I mean, like, for instance, the idea of, God, if you want me to do this, then let this happen. But if you don't want me to do it, then don't let this happen. And so then I say, okay, well, before you make a judgment, I, did you ask God if he was fine with your agreement, if he accepted your agreement yeah. or not? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say exactly what you said, that why think that we're the ones to impose uh, these only two options to God, uh, you know, for one thing or the other to come about. Um, God's doing his thing. And I, it, in my understanding... The best way for us to live is to abide by the teachings of the scriptures. Right. And therein lies God's will for our life. Um, mm -hmm. he, he's told us how we should live. We don't have to go and <clears throat> play divine detective, if you will, to figure mm -hmm. out what, what God wants us to do with our lives. Right. Uh, you know, Micah 6 8 says uh, <clears throat> that uh, we are to walk humbly with the Lord. Uh, to love mercy, act justly, and walk humbly with the Lord. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, we're, we're told that uh, that the chief duty of man is to fear God and obey his commandments. Mm. And simply enough, that's our job. Our job is not to figure out if we're supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer. On my understanding, God hasn't determined that you would be a doctor or a lawyer. He's leaving that, for the most part, in your hands. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's really up to us if we want to be a lawyer or a doctor because mm. no matter what we do we're doing good work because whatever we do we're doing it for the glory of God it, we don't we don't see Moses trying to figure out God's will for his life he's shepherding sheep and God decides that he wants Moses to lead his people mm. Paul was on the way to kill Christians and God revealed, revealed himself, and that radically shook Paul's worldview, right, because he wasn't a believer. But he became a believer, and uh, then he gave Paul a special task to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is given these special earthly tasks. And I think the reason why we, we read about these characters in Scripture is precisely because they're extraordinary. They're not mm -hmm. ordinary. And I yeah. think if you haven't had a, a overtly supernatural experience where an angel tells you to go somewhere or God in a dream speaks to you about what you're supposed to do, then it's okay to live an ordinary life. Just do your best with what you've been given. Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly normal, and that's how God wants us to live. I'm remembering a story I heard years ago talking with someone online, and they were telling me, you know, I always wanted to be a missionary, but I I never went and became a missionary. So, mm -hmm. Okay, why not? So, I never got called. And at this point, I'm kind of banging my head on a keyboard or something like that. Saying, <laughs> Did you ever consider maybe your strong desire to be a missionary was a call in itself? Right, right. So uh, it's very interesting. Um, you know, part of my interest is in, you know, kind of Christian pop culture. And, and part of this is what... A lot of people call Christianese the way that we talk to each other. Yeah. Part of this, I would, I, 
I'd say is this term calling. What is a calling? Mm -hmm. And the way we use calling today is different than the way we see the word calling in the scripture. Mm -hmm. the, the way we see calling in the scripture is an actual uh, uh, angelic experience or an overtly supernatural experience. Uh, an angel appears to an individual and gives them some task, you know, some news, uh, mm. or God himself, uh, you know, through an audible voice or uh, through some other manifestation, the burning bush experience, you know, gives people their calling. And today when we mean calling, it's very similar to what you said. It's just that we have a strong desire Mm -hmm. Who we are and the things that we are good at, uh, the things we desire to, to be, uh, those are part of our calling. That's the way mm -hmm. God has created us. Um, mm -hmm. But that's also not to say that we're stuck only with our skills. We can learn new skills, for instance, and we may discover new loves and new passions. And then in, in understanding that, we could say, oh, well, you know, Maybe God's then called you to this. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I think the way we use the term calling today is quite different than the biblical sense of calling. And as long as we understand that distinction, I think we can uh, rightly understand what God's plan for us is. You know, to, in that example you gave about the person who said they wanted to be a missionary, but they didn't get a calling. Well, yeah, God w gave us the great commission to go and make disciples. Yep. And uh, he, he told us right there. And so in your desire to go be a missionary, mm -hmm. that's what he's telling you. Go, go do it if you really want to do it. Maybe since we are, we've always been talking about the problem of evil, maybe one of the reasons the problem of evil doesn't seem to fit so much with Christianity today, you know, as a lot of people, is we kind of have made this buddy-buddy system of God where, God's your best friend. God's the one you hang out with. God's even your boyfriend. Yeah. In some cases. Yeah, I'm dating and, God, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or I'm in love with Jesus right now. <laughs> and, and then when something happens, like, okay, is God an abusive boyfriend? Isn't a friend supposed to help you? Isn't a friend yeah. supposed to talk to you regularly? Mm -hmm. What kind of friend is that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, so I used to think that. And um, that God is kind of uh, not just has a special plan for my life, but that he was orchestrating events in the universe around this. And, mm -hmm. um, and that actually led me to a spiritually dark place. I became, I wouldn't say I was clinically depressed, but I was spiritually depressed mm -hmm. because I expected God to talk to me, uh, mm -hmm. to reveal what his plan was. And it was only until I began to see how other people had this, the same idea, that how paralyzing it was. So when, when I was at Biola, mm -hmm. often in the spring, there would be Christian camps that would set up tables to try and get volunteers for the summer. And it, conversations in the dorms went, you know, were about debating between which one to go to, Camp A or Camp B. You know, and what would end up happening is that the person wouldn't decide because they, they wouldn't know what God's plan was for them. Mm -hmm. And so instead of going to one Christian camp and being an influence on young uh, children, mm -hmm. 
there was no influence on the children because the person didn't do didn't go anywhere and uh, <clears throat> this is not how God wants us to live he wants us to go and do not to sit around uh, there's a place for sitting around and resting and relaxing but he wants us to go do it and be an influence in people's lives so I, I found that it was very paralyzing the idea that God is orchestrating the world's events around me and um, and the more I read the scriptures, the more I recognized, wow, these, these characters are extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, these, this is not normative. Uh, this is not the way that God interacts with everybody. All you need to do, I mean, just read Exodus, and you see that Moses has a different relationship with God than Aaron does, and a different relationship uh, than, you know, the average Joe Israelite. Mm -hmm. uh, God relates differently to different people, and that's okay. You know, I think one of the problems also with the kind of approach I was talking about is that I'm not, I don't know about you, but for me personally, one of my own problems is I think about myself way too much. And when you have this kind of view of God, well, guess what? God ends up pretty much becoming your servant who's supposed to do everything That's for right. you. And it becomes more and more you-centered. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's it's very self-centered. I mean, to think that God is orchestrating the world's events around you is very self-centered. One example I give to uh, explain this is imagine someone who's running late for church. You know, running late, of course, that's their fault uh, for being, uh, you know, running behind to get to church on time. And they start on their drive uh, on their way to church, and all of a sudden they, they catch the first green light. And then they catch the second green light. And then they catch all the rest of the green lights. And you think, wow, that was impeccable. They may even think, wow, God gave me all of the green lights on the way to church. Mm -hmm. He must be orchestrating uh, the events of the world such that I'll, I'll benefit from them. And then right? he gave you a parking spot close to the door, too. Yes, no, exactly. Right. So, But this is obviously problematic So that God is uh, manipulating the uh, the structure of the streetlight system uh, off of its normal functionings, or or even that God is making other people late to church because they're stuck with the reds, uh, the the red lights. Right. Uh, and and that really poses a big problem that God is you know favoring you over other uh, Christians who maybe left their house on time. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, it's like you said, it becomes very self-centered. And, and I think, honestly, I think some of this thinking contributes to, uh, even for Christians, to their experiencing evil and suffering. Because they begin to perceive that uh, they're experiencing suffering when really they're not. So yeah. it's almost like they have these higher expectations and their expectations aren't met. And... They think they're suffering, but the reality is, is that they're not. And this is coming from a, a false view of how we relate to God. And I think part of it also is that when we start thinking of that, we think suffering is out of the ordinary. And that when we're suffering, we're something clearly wrong with the universe. When, when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, he tells us, expect suffering. It's coming. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. Uh, one of the big problems with American evangelicalism is uh, 
Well, well, thankfully, maybe not so much anymore, but what has been is this idea that God wants us to live comfortable lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's only promised until he re- for when he returns. <laughs> yeah, there was a story that I've heard that, about Frank Turek that his wife had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door one day, and they started on their talk, and he said, Do you believe that God wants you to be happy? And she said, No. And I just sent them totally confused at that point. That's really funny. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm reminded, uh, and I know you've had more face-to-face time with Gary Habermas, but mm-hmm. I remember listening to a lecture he gave at Biola uh, while I was there. It could have been at a Talbot School of Theology-sponsored event. But at any rate, Habermas was talking, and he was talking about um, depression a bit and, and mm-hmm. evil and suffering because, as you know, his, his wife passed away. Yep. And um, and he was recounting to the audience what really brought him out of it, what really brought him out of the depression. And he, he talked about a change in understanding, a change in the perception right. itself was good enough to help him get out of the the lowly state that he was in. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's right. I think uh, one of one of the ways. I, I don't want to say the only way, but one of the ways, maybe even one of the main ways, to deal with evil and suffering is to understand our place in the world and to understand a, a bit better, though not exhaustively, how it is that evil and suffering come about. Mm-hmm. And when we do that. Uh, not only does it take us out of those lowly places, but it can help fight against having those low states come upon us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're, at this point in the show, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. Right now, we got T. Kurt Jones of us talking about original sin, problem of evil, and we're going to have, have another big topic we're going to be talking about later on. But if you're listening to the show next week, if you're interested in Mormonism, you definitely need to be listening to this show. We're going to have Lynn Wilder on. She's an ex-Mormon, used to be a professor at BYU, and she's written an excellent book, one of the best books on Mormonism I've read, called Unveiling Grace. She's going to be with us next week, so you all be listening for that show. Now, what you were talking about with Gary Habermas, this is his idea of telling yourself the truth, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, as mm-hmm. it's called. Now, I mean, there are some times where it's not going to alleviate suffering necessarily. I, mean, I think, for instance, I had right. back surgery when I was 15. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry, but sitting in a, in a hospital bed and telling myself the truth isn't going to make me want the morphine that I was being given any less at that yes. point. Yes, that's but, right. But, there are, but, of course, I could change my attitude about the pain that was real in my life, and that could help. But then there are other areas where the real suffering that we're going through, it really isn't based on anything external. It's based on something we tell ourselves about the event. Uh, for instance, my wife likes to go swimming a lot. Uh, one of the reasons she wants us to work out regularly in the pool is she likes it. It's a good way she wants to be fit. She enjoys it. And it would all work out so wonderfully if it wasn't for that little 
tiny problem that I'm absolutely terrified of water. <laughs> I, I, I had this event where when I was a young boy at the beach and about four or five, I got introduced to the undertow very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. But I get in with her, and after she does her lap, she comes and she works with me some. And as I've told people before, there have been a number of times, like one of the first times we started going through, and I've thought, okay, she, she's trying to kill me right now, I swear, she's trying to kill me. <laughs> I ask three times at once, have you taken out a life insurance policy on me recently? <laughs> and uh, my suffering in that case, that is entirely mental. I mean, yes, people do drown. But the worst danger that I'm going through is based on what I'm telling myself. It's not the external reality, it's the internal reality. Yeah. Yeah, well, and even in your situation, there were external causes to your, uh, you might even say phobia. Yeah, phobia is uh, accurate. Yeah, whereas in the cases I'm thinking, these are individuals who simply have too high of expectations for... Mm -hmm. God's supposed plan for their life. Yep. And um, so, so this, along with other expectations of how the world is supposed to be, uh, if we rightly understand the situation, we're not going to be disappointed, uh, which then leads to what we think is suffering. Um, you know. So, but, you know, yeah, for the instance you talked about with your, your back, yeah, of course, there, there are these physical ailments that plague us, uh, that plague humans, and, uh, and that wouldn't be what I have in mind here when I'm talking about how important it is to, um, to course correct our thinking. Again, as you pointed out, yeah, we can, we can have good, we can have attitudes, uh, good or bad, and rightly understanding the situation will help but yeah even if you had back surgery that if you if you recognize that wow humans are fallen and we're prone to uh, to accidents or to even genetic uh, dispositions yeah uh, genetic that, in my case yeah that afflict us well you know that's that's life and uh, God does have a great plan to rid the world of all of that and that's the wonderful news but he it's no guarantee that he's going to do that right now. Habermas would say the worst suffering that you go through is not about what happens to you, but what you tell yourself about what happens to you. Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, very nice way. And I can say with my own phobia, one thing I've told Ari about it is that um, the way I'm going to have to get past this eventually is someday the desire to be free and to enjoy things is going to have to be greater than the desire to be playing it safe, right, as it right. were. And, and you can want to get to that spot, but if you're not there yet, you're just not there yet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, and for some people, it's taking it one day at a time. I mean, right. for people that are really dealing with evil and suffering, uh, it's important to just take one day at a time. You know, uh, one thing I think it's important to talk about since we're both apologists in this kind of show is I've told people before about projects and said if you're ever for instance the minister at a church and a woman comes to you and she's crying because she's a mother 
and she's found out her teenage son has just died in a car accident, and she comes to you and says, if you turn into an apologist or a philosopher at that moment, I will come over and smack you. Yeah, that, that's right. So the the apologist and philosopher needs to read the book of Job <laughs> um, and to uh, to see that to, to yeah to give some philosophical explanation, a theodicy of uh, evil and the existence of God to the person that has just experienced evil and suffering. That would be to commit the error that Job's friends uh, sort of make. Um, and much less the fact that the errors they made were also bad theolo theodicies. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that Job is supposed to be the oldest book in the Bible, and it's got a kind of theology in it that's directly refuted by God himself in the book, and it's still one that Christians hold to. Mm, yeah. That's right. Well, as I had previously pointed out, Job and the lessons therein, I believe, pose a big problem for a number of Christians. Not just people dealing with this, but uh, Reformed people. Uh, I think rightly understanding uh, God's role and the existence of evil and suffering um, is problematic. Now, uh, John Walton, I know you've had him on yeah, uh, you're showing uh, once at least. Um, he, he's got a, June of last year. Okay, boy, you've got a great memory about when these guys come on. Um, uh, he he explains it nicely. Um, he talks about how uh, there's order and disorder in the world, and part of what we experience is disorder. And that's not to say that God. Is the one causing disorder? We wouldn't we wouldn't think that at all. Yeah. Uh, so that's one, that's one of the things we can learn from Job that there's disorder in the world. Uh, I like to talk about the concept of shalom. Mm -hmm. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things aren't the way they ought to be. That that summary there of of shalom is the way I would explain what Walton calls disorder. Um, and and we experience these things. Uh, bad things do happen to good people, and it's because we live in a fallen world uh, where there's sickness, there's death, uh, there are spiritual forces at play that we don't even know about, and things things happen that were not intended to happen. Mm -hmm. And but God is the, the good news is that God is actively working to fight those forces. Uh, both in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. And we are part of that process of building for his kingdom. Uh, and that includes doing things like healing the sick, if not miraculous, you know, supernaturally, naturally healing the sick, coming up with ways to, you know, various surgeries that can help people uh, better their physical, you know, to, to heal or to help them deal with their physical ailments. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all a part of God's great plan that uh, he's working out. Yeah, I can say that I certainly have high hopes that John Walton will be coming back again when he has his new book coming out soon, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. That mm -hmm. I, I've, I've considered running by him this idea that I had about a month or two ago, and it fits in with what you were saying, that I've come to think that whenever we participate in sin, 
we are participating in what I like to call uncreation, as a mm. word. But God creates a world that's good, and whenever we sin, we are undoing some of the good and preventing some good that could be. Mm. But whenever we live righteous lives, we are bringing about that goodness. Again, we're getting us back to paradise, as it were. Yeah. 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 No, so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting thing. thing. Uh, I'd have, have to think more about that and uh, the concept of uncreating or undoing mm-hmm. uh, creation. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Also, when we're talking about the view of God, I think it's just that in many cases, we're not prepared for a problem of evil because we don't really have robust thinking going on in our churches much of the time. Uh, one such example, I think, is that in the past, most of us grew up singing hymns. Mm-hmm. Those hymns often had deep theology in them. Yeah. And today, we sing praise choruses, and unfortunately, many of them are extremely shallow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am, um, you know, and this is a non essential issue, but I, I do enjoy a traditional style of worship and singing the great hymns of the faith. But for those that do uh, prefer the contemporary style, I would just encourage those to really begin supporting uh, praise songs that have some more meat on the bones, if you will. Uh, and so we need to be making all the sort of the, the best music that we can at all levels. And, um, you know, I think you're right. We, we can learn a lot then if, if even our praise and worship songs uh, are teaching more robust theology. Yeah, and our sermons definitely always have to be centered on what the scripture says. And I've said before here that I really like the way our church handles it. Because we know the kind of culture we live in, and our pastors will come out at the beginning of the service and say, they got this little video about it, and say, hey, if you have a question during the service about anything whatsoever, just text it in to this number, and <laughs> after the service at the end, we'll come out and we'll answer your questions. And yeah. this is, is so simple, and it's so revolutionary at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's... There are a lot of ways we can uh, perhaps improve on the way we're currently doing things. Mm-hmm. So uh, coming up with a big pool of ideas and testing them out to see uh, how, how they work uh, could be a very good idea. Yeah. yeah, I'm also thinking that there was a study done, I think Dennis Prager looked at this, where he was looking at couples that divorce after there was some sort of tragedy in their marriage, like the death of a child, for instance. Mm-hmm. Said, yeah. If there was one thing that kept a couple together or that really helped contribute to keeping them together, it's that that couple already had a place within their worldview to explain evil. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's really important that we have, a, let's say, an understanding of evil. Uh, maybe even a strong understanding. I don't want to say we have all the answers. That's yeah. definitely not what I want to say. Uh, right. We we don't, and that's definitely the lesson of Job. Uh, that to me, that's Job's error. Jo- Job wants an explanation. So a, a lot of times we Job, and we don't realize that Job himself makes an error. And the the error, the sin, if you will, of Job 
is in thinking that he is owed an answer, mm. interestingly enough. And this is his error. And <clears throat> we Christians, I think, make that same mistake. We don't learn from Job. Mm -hmm. uh, we learn from his friends about what not to do, but we don't learn from Job. Um, the narrator is telling the story, not Job. So we see that Job makes an error, and it's that Job thinks he's owed an answer. Fact is, we're not owed an answer for all of these uh, these reasons that we can't see for why evil and suffering occurs. And uh, but, like I said, yeah, if we had some understanding, in understanding, a strong understanding of evil and suffering, that can go a long way in helping married couples stay together mm -hmm. when they experience evil and suffering, mm -hmm. helping family members uh, to not uh, grow distant, uh, and in general, just individually dealing with the problem of evil and suffering, yeah. uh, specifically the experiential or religious problem of evil and suffering. It's also interesting in the book of Job that Job asked for an answer repeatedly, and when God shows up, God never gives him an answer. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah. fact is, we humans are not owed an answer nope. uh, for all that's going on uh, in in the cosmos, including the spiritual realm. Uh, we are but finite creatures, uh, very limited in our understanding, and uh, for all we know, we simply couldn't comprehend all of the variables at play that. Yeah. Uh, bring about evil and suffering in the world. When we were getting ready to start this show, and I don't mean this episode, I mean the whole podcast back mm -hmm. last year, I needed to get some headphones for that to use at the time. And uh -huh. the, I had a friend who worked for Premier Jewelry, she still does, and she offered to give us a fundraiser at someone's house to do that. We had maybe four or five people come by. In the end, I got a thing like, 75 80 bucks or so mm -hmm. and someone would say wait you spent went there for hours have a good fundraiser and you only had four or five people come by and i said you know what i was very thankful for what came by because yeah. it was enough to get what i needed and yeah. god didn't owe me any amount whatsoever whatever he gave me that was his gift to me and i was going to accept it and give thanks for it yeah that's right um <laughs> interestingly enough um, you know, there's different theories out there about people's reactions to evil and suffering and, and how that affects the relationship with God. And, and I find that um, for people that are, uh, shall I say, poor, for people who don't have a lot, when they experience evil and suffering, they're simply reminded uh, more easily than people with... Uh, more wealth, shall we say. And this is just based on probabilities. I'm not saying this is always the case. Uh, poor individuals who experience evil and suffering are quickly reminded of the blessings that they do have. Mm -hmm. um, when you think about America uh, and all the great uh, <clears throat> societal blessings that we have, uh, we are we have so many blessings compared to people in the past and people uh, in other parts of the world today that uh, we're simply on no moral high ground to uh, to reject God 
if we experience evil and suffering. I mean, I don't think anybody ever is, but we especially, you know, are in such uh, a great society where even if we have trouble financially, there's help available. I mean, even just think of like government aid, uh, that, that wouldn't be my first option. Uh, given my uh, political philosophy, my economic philosophy, but but that option is available. So if, if you literally have no one to go to, uh, you could you could go to uh, the government and receive uh, aid. And that um, you know, 150 years ago, never existed anywhere. Uh, just wasn't an option. So <clears throat> we have great blessings here. We we should be reminded of the blessings we do have. And that can help us in coping with our our troubles, uh, whether or not we can afford to pay the bills, or if we're trying to advance our own uh, profession, uh, the the work we want to do, the ministry we want to do. Uh, we should just be thankful for what we do have and and utilize what we do have. We need to be good stewards of the things we have. Mm-hmm. You know, so, sometimes. Uh, on another related note, we're not good stewards with the things that we have. Mm. So we need to make sure we're not building up storehouses, right, uh, with, with things that are just gathering dust because we can't take them with. <laughs> yeah. uh. it, it's interesting that we're, we're talking about all this at this point in the show. Of course, this is the point of the show where I do remind everyone that what we do on this show is indeed listener-supported. I, I don't get any income from the show. No one pays me. To do this, I'm giving it my own time here, and our guests come on, they give Freedy of their own time as well. Now, if you want to support what I'm doing here at my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com, there is a donate tab there, and if you click that, you'll go to Risen Jesus Ministries. You can wonder, okay, what's going on here? Risen Jesus is the ministry that mainly sponsors us, and if you go and you make a donation, what you need to do is email me, and my email is on my blog, or you email Debbie, who is the financial guru behind Risen Jesus, and say, hey, I made a donation to Nick Peters at Deeper Waters, and I want to make sure that he receives it, and Debbie will make sure you receive it, or if you send it to me, I'll pass it on, she makes sure you receive it, and if you want to become monthly donors, that would be excellent. <laughs> now, there are some other ways you can support us as well. We do have from the blog an Amazon store, so if you have a book that you want to get, check and see if it's in my store first. And, you know, if you're going to buy the book anyway, buy a way that you can give a little bit of a proceeds to Deeper Waters. That way it won't cost you anything more whatsoever. And then, finally, we have some ebooks that are available. The main one right now is Defining Inerrancy. Actually, we do have one coming out soon with a dialogue that I had with an atheist through email for a while called God and Natural Disasters. I'm hoping that's going to be out sometime this month. Now, Kurt, do you have a cause or ministry that you'd like people to donate to? And if so, how do they do it? Yes, yeah. Um, You know, I work with Apologetics.com, which is a 501c3 organization. And um, people can go to Apologetics.com. There's a donate button. Uh, we're, uh, our staff is largely uh, volunteer-based, uh, bivocational folk uh, who work uh, for a living uh, but do this on the side. And uh, we're trying to grow and expand the ministry. And uh, the reason why I chuckled a bit when you had mentioned about uh, the monthly support is that that is 
exactly what uh, folks like us in ministry are looking for because it's it's so much easier to budget <laughs> not just not just for the ministry in general but for our own pocketbooks yeah uh, when we want to pay the bills it's so much easier to have monthly supporters and uh, and even those uh, for those considering uh, supporting Nick uh, or are those considering supporting uh, apologetics.com if you're thinking 10 bucks a month um, you know, I'd, I'd prefer 10 bucks a month instead of an annual $120. I would prefer knowing that there's that 10 bucks coming in a month and, uh, you know, getting 10, 20, 30 people to give 10 bucks a month, that adds up, you know? So if you're considering donating to either cause, uh, uh, please do so uh, even in small amounts, uh, mm-hmm. don't doubt that it won't go a long way because it will. Yeah, it, it means a lot to us here whenever we get any sort of donation coming in. And I can tell you, if you are if you're benefiting really from deeper waters and what we're doing, take part in the planting in that way. Uh, I think that's thoroughly biblical, in fact, and I, I encourage you to do it, and we definitely need your support. Um, one book that I did mention is a, another topic we need to talk about, and that was a book, Defining Inerrancy. Yeah. Uh, this is a really important issue today, but it's not for the reason that a lot of defenders of inerrancy think, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, inerrancy is a hot topic uh, right now in evangelical circles, mm-hmm. and um, there's, there's a lot to be said on this issue. Uh, some evangelicals, especially non-Americans, they they don't even want they don't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they either think it's false or it's simply not necessary. Now, to those that say it's not necessary, um, I, I would say you might think it's not necessary, but I would still say it's true. Uh, but before we even keep talking about it, we need to ask ourselves. What is inerrancy? How do we define inerrancy? You know, I was on uh, I was on Facebook. Uh, I guess maybe this was last week or two weeks ago, and there was one fellow. He was talking about how, you know, evangelicals need to just just reject inerrancy and, and move on. And this guy's a Christian, and uh, he's saying, you know, we we would better understand the scriptures if we didn't have inerrancy in the way. And there was a big thread going on, you know, with multiple people chiming in, and I noticed no one had defined inerrancy. Mm-hmm. What do we mean when we use the term? Mm-hmm. And um, to to you you and uh, JP Holdings credit, Nick, uh, you guys published an ebook uh, called "Defining Inerrancy," and uh, I, I think you're on the right track. Uh, there needs to be more about what the definition of inerrancy is, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you and I, I see eye to eye on this. We are in a debate of sorts between uh, what's more traditionally those people will call the traditionalists, uh, people who, uh, let's see, oh, I forget how exactly you guys define them. You want to give it your shot on how you define the traditionalists? Well, the rest of the traditional view was more along the lines of it was kind of read in a modern mindset that the Bible was written to us, in a sense specifically, and we should go with the literal interpretation of Scripture whenever possible. Mm-hmm. And 
So this, this view is contrasted with what we'll call uh, the contextualists. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe I can give a, a better definition here um, than I could have for the traditionalists. The contextualists believe simply that what the author wrote is uh, what was meant. And so we focus more on authorial intent. Mm -hmm. And that's key to understanding the meaning of the text. Mm -hmm. And when we encounter difficulties, perceived difficulties uh, in the text, uh, we, the contextualists, recognize that our 21st century standards of history are quite different than the standards of history of the uh, of doing history in the past. So, especially you know when you're looking at the Gospels in the first century, the way they did history then is a lot different than the way we do history today. Not just history, but interpretation. Period. Since not everything written in the Bible is history. Right. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Uh, so, let, let me give one basic example. And even the traditionalists would agree with this. But, interestingly enough, a lot of Christians don't realize this. If you look at the Gospels, and you read the Gospels, and you look at them closely, you'll begin to see that there is strong disagreement as to the chronological order of events in Jesus' life and ministry. Right. Uh, it is simply not the case that the four authors wanted to write a uh, what, what today we would deem as just a chronological history or biography, the way we'd write a biography today. It was done quite differently. And now even the traditionalists would agree with us here. Yeah. But, but there are differences uh, between the traditionalists and the contextualists that, for whatever reason, are causing the traditionalists to attack the traditionalists and um, to build up straw men, to uh, be name-calling uh, the contextualists. And it's, it's really a sad situation. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I'm, I'm hoping um, to give your listeners uh, a little bit of a preview. Uh, you know, I've been talking with you and with uh, JP Holding about um, expanding and revising the edition of defining an ANC and to get it uh, published in paper format. And, uh, you know, we, what we want to do is uh, write some more and invite scholars to contribute on this um, to really be a response to the traditionalist view. And I think this can be very beneficial for individuals because a lot of Christians or skeptics even, uh, or maybe seekers is a better term, uh, not necessarily skeptics, seekers, may come to the scripture under the assumption that inerrancy must mean what the traditionalists take it to mean. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be that. I, I know you and I see eye to eye on this. It doesn't have right. to be that way uh, mm -hmm. because I think what a proper view of inerrancy is the contextualist view. Mm -hmm. And for seekers and believers that come to the text, they might come to different conclusions uh, under the contextualist view than the traditional view. Mm -hmm. 
there's a book that was written by Mark Knoll, and I'm talking of him about coming on the show sometime, called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And what it was, was there was a group that said, we're going to go by what the Bible says, just what the Bible says. We don't need any outside sources. The scripture is clear enough. And there was no group that said, no, we need to uh, interpret the Bible in light of the culture of a time mm -hmm. instead. And we need to use other sources. And, you know, maybe just by just <laughs> reading the Bible alone, maybe we won't get everything we should out of it. The former group was by and large pro-slavery. The second group was by mm. and large anti-slavery. That's a very revealing characteristic. Yeah, well, and yeah, that's, that is definitely revealing. And as it pertains to today's conversation, you hear that same thing. You know, let the Bible speak for itself. Um, yes, but there's a difficulty with that. And often the difficulty is that we're letting our own interpretations speak for the Bible. Mm -hmm. Not not the Bible speaking for itself. So yeah. what happens is if you hold to a traditionalist view, mm -hmm. uh, for example, let's take the old earth creationism, young earth creationism example. If you're going to hold to the traditionalist view, you would have to be a uh, – well, you wouldn't necessarily, but it would be very probable – that you would be a young earth creationist, right? The mm -hmm. Bible says God created in six days and rested on the seventh, right? So that's what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but that really doesn't under, um, best consider the historical context of the audience, who it was written to, the genre of poetry that it's written in, and, and all sorts of other various factors. Mm -hmm. So I think that... It really poses a problem. As you pointed out, the traditionalists back then uh, were ended up supporting slavery, and the contextualists wouldn't because what we're really trying to do is get to the, the heart of the meaning of the text. Mm -hmm. And uh, the text itself doesn't take on its own meaning, if you will. In, in one sense, it does, but we want to get to the meaning of the author. Mm. What the author meant. There's and, also uh, a danger I know is that when we make inerrancy be the main essential, it defines everything else. That when I'm engaging with skeptics, it becomes what I call a game of stump the Bible scholar, where they yeah. come and they represent this list you can find online anywhere of here's 100 Bible contradictions. You need to address all of them, and then even if you took the time and went through and addressed. Every single one of them, where guess what? Here's 100 more that you can go through. And nowadays, when I see this, I say, look, let's just cut it, okay? Forget this. Yeah. Because let's suppose, for the sake of argument, there are errors in the Bible. I don't think there are, but let's suppose, for the sake of argument, there are. Okay? Sure. I can still have a case that Jesus rose from the dead. And that is the main thing you need to deal with. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then either of these contradictions are resolvable. Or they don't matter. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all we're engaging in is trivia right now. So let's go to the resurrection. Let's make the resurrection the focus of proving Christianity, not inerrancy. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> what happens is, you know, my father-in-law puts it well. He talks about 
how some Christians major in the minors and uh, minor in the majors. Oh, yeah. And uh, though inerrancy is important, mm. to me, it is a non-essential right. doctrine of the faith. And Even some of the traditionalists would agree with you on that. That's right. But, but there are some traditionalists out there who, who think it's necessary. Mm. And um, those traditionalists, I think, are quite confused uh, about <laughs> their, their doctrine of scripture. Mm -hmm. I, I find that when we hold such a rigid form of inerrancy and stake everything on that, that we're in fact preparing young Christians to become atheists, because for most of us, sorry, but we don't carry around, I mean, not even myself, and, and I, I think I've got a very good memory, I don't have memorized every single answer to every single possible contradiction out there. That's asking too much of anyone. I mean, most PhDs who are apologists who have studied the Bible for all their lives, I'd say the huge majority of them, if not all of them, could not do that. And mm -hmm. we're get, sending off college students and expecting them to be able to address every single contradiction. And I, I have seen some Christians say that if there's one contradiction in the Bible, then it's not true and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And frankly, it terrifies me when I see that. Oh yeah, that is such fallacious reasoning. <laughs> That's right. As you pointed out, if there's even one error, hypothetically, if there's one error in the scripture, in no way does that mean, therefore, it's all false. That is just poor uh, logical thinking. In fact, um, Frank Zindler, who's a Christ miffer and has gone so far as even being a Paul miffer now, hmm. Has, it, in one of his articles defending his position, he'll say, well, let's go to the Gospels. And then he'll go and he'll find one thing in, say, the Gospel of Luke that he thinks is wrong. And he says, well, so much for Luke being a reliable source. And I'm looking at my thing. If we did that with ancient history across the board, we would know nothing about ancient history. Yeah. Hey, not even, not even ancient history. Just take about, you know, give an example, a contemporary example. How about a news, news reporter? If a news reporter gets one fact wrong, mm -hmm. we should just throw out all of it? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just this uh, huge, unwarranted, unjustified standard uh, that people have. And uh, like we were talking about earlier with, with evil and suffering, these unjustified standards lead people to improper and false conclusions. Mm -hmm. uh, so we really need to first look at the, the standards and assess these standards and ask, you know, are these, uh, are these reliable standards to have? Are these justifiable standards or assumptions to have? Are they not? And I think in a lot of these cases, yeah, we would point and say, look, that's just unjustified. It's, it's imposing a standard uh, as it pertains to inerrancy. It's imposing a standard upon the text that the that the writers themselves wouldn't have had. You know, what we can say with some of these is some people when I'm telling them this are saying, well, how are we supposed to know, and this can be skeptics or Christians, but you say, how are we supposed to know what is true in the Bible? And I said, well, you know, you could try this strange concept of studying it and doing some historiography and looking at the text that way, you know, just like you do with any other document whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, and, and we don't see it. We don't. Um, I was talking to 
a friend about the importance of Bible backgrounds. Um, <laughs> for whatever reason, we we think we can understand the Bible, this book that's <laughs> over 2,000 years old, you know, roughly, um, and believe that we can understand it. Um, but but there's a big problem, and it and it's that. Uh, as John Walton has said, to reference him again, it wasn't written to us. It was written to people of that time. Mm -hmm. And so we make a big error in thinking that it's written to us. Mm -hmm. uh, we really need to bring ourselves back into that time setting. And, and that's not to say, you know, when you come to scholars who are really trying to do that and you see that they have different views, that's okay. Um, and, but I would say that those positions of the scholars that really try to take themselves back into that time period, I would say that those can, views are superior to the person who just thinks the Bible is written to us today. So many things wouldn't apply to us. Uh, just read the epistles, you know. And uh, But for whatever reason, we give the Bible some... Uh, maybe because you know we do deem it the truth, we give it some extra spiritual power, almost like a mystical power to speak to us w without needing to do any homework. <laughs> yeah. And not only is it that the Bible is 2,000 years old, but it's written in different languages, it was written in a different place, and mm -hmm. it was written in a different culture. And different authors. Yeah. Yep. And we go and we act like, well, all I need to do is just Pick it up and read it, and I can understand everything. And honestly, that's awfully arrogant of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Now, let, you know, I don't want to push too far. There is, in one sense, the idea that we can understand what it's saying. So this is the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, that it's clear. But but I don't want to say that it's exhaustively clear. It's, it's not clear everywhere. But it's clear enough, if you will, that... The person who hasn't had any background knowledge uh, to understand what the Bible says, if they pick it up and read it, they can understand, uh, at the very least, the basics of what's going on. And even to the astute learner, they could get a good understanding of what's going on. So in that sense, I do want to affirm the perspicuity of Scripture. But there are those that affirm the perspicuity of Scripture to the extreme. And they think the scripture exhaustively can be understood. And uh, that's just setting yourself up for failure, like you said. And that gets us into what we were talking about in the last major segment, where inerrancy tends to make the Bible all about me as mm -hmm. well. And what's going yeah. on in my life. And I tell people, I say, you know, you really need the rest of a text. I mean, what I've told them, for instance, is um, I was talking to my wife about reading an Old Testament passage, and I said, Hun, when you're reading an Old Testament passage, the first thing I want you to do is stop being a Christian. And that mm -hmm. sounds shocking to some people. I said, no, you don't read it as a Christian. You try and put aside everything you know about Jesus at that point. You just say, if I was a Jew living in this time, and I read this passage, what would I think? And now, yeah. after that, you can go to the New Testament time and say, okay, now... I'm a Christian, and I've read this passage. In light of Jesus, what do I think about it? And then you can come to your modern times and see what you think about it. Yeah, that's right. I, 
I taught a class, uh, New Testament exegesis, last year at um, a local uh, classical Christian classical school, and uh, what I taught my students was to not read the Bible like you're reading the Bible. Uh, for whatever reason, when we think we're reading the Bible, we, like I said, we make all these sorts of uh, jumps and assumptions, and we can be very self-centered in our interpretation. Uh, or, you know, we have letters written specifically to churches dealing with specific issues, but yet for some reason we think they it's written to our circumstances when really it's not. Mm-hmm. The, the best question we need to ask ourselves when correctly interpreting the scripture is, how does this apply to my situation? Right. And that's different than, you know, saying, what does it, what does it mean for me? You know, I don't want to get into any relativism or anything like that yeah. uh, in interpretation. The question we're really trying to get to the heart of is, how does it apply? Mm-hmm. And that's when, that's when we can learn from the scriptures mm-hmm. uh, for how it affects our life today and our circumstances today. Yeah, I actually think one of the big problems we make is usually when we discuss these in small groups and churches and such, we tend to jump straight to application. But mm-hmm. before you do application, you have to figure out what does the text mean? And not just what does it mean to me, but what does it mean, period? Yeah, well, yeah, and that's right. That's the first thing is... Uh, that's the first question. That that comes much more <laughs> to our minds. It should come much more to our minds before asking ourselves, uh, how does it apply? Absolutely. Um, say, so I, I've got a question for you, Nick. I know um, some people, some of your listeners might be thinking of like, what's a good statement out there on inerrancy? Um, you know, I, I think, and I know this was put out mainly by the traditionalists, but what are your thoughts uh, on the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy? You know, I've really come to a point where I think because of controversies that have gone on, the Chicago statement has kind of been tainted with that mm-hmm. reputation. And because we've learned a lot in the past 30 years since then, I wouldn't have a problem with evangelicals coming together again saying, in light of our new knowledge, we need to make a new statement on uh-huh. inerrancy. And I think there are also some other simpler forms of inerrancy out there. The Losane Covenant, for instance, that works well, but I would uh-huh. have no objections whatsoever. But if we had another kind of ICBI thing, I want to make sure we get the real scholars going down there. The New Testament scholars, the Old Testament scholars, the philosophers, and for the last one, we had people that weren't scholars at all taking part mm-hmm. in it, and we've, we'd have some great preachers, people like that, yeah, but they're not very authorities on interpreting the text in that way, and we need the best Christian authorities to come together and make a statement. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and I haven't studied the Chicago Statement as much as you have, but I would say it's kind of like a, a general uh, mm-hmm. uh, general introduction to inerrancy. For, for someone who hasn't had any exposure to the concept of inerrancy, it would be a, a good starting point. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the Chicago Statement isn't uh, – it's not a core Christian doctrine. Uh, it's not an ecumenical council. 
<laughs> um, and the individuals who composed it, they had disagreements themselves uh, over inerrancy. And so that, that really poses a problem then uh, for people. I know there are some traditionalists out there who almost, they, they revere the Chicago statement so much, but they fail to recognize its, uh, its downsides. So yeah, but there's some, they, they get so strong that they just say, but the ICBI council says, the ICBI says, and at this point I'm wondering, okay, ICBI is in the front of your Bibles now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and it's important people know those of us who are contextualist, we're not anti-inerrancy. We actually do hold an extremely high view of Scripture, and we treat it extremely seriously. We treat it so seriously that we try to study it in depth to do the best we can to figure mm -hmm. out what the author is wanting to say to us and what the divine author is wanting to say to us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. Yeah, I see a number of difficulties with the traditional view that I think the contextual view is far superior. Um, so not, not just the problems with interpreting ICBI correctly, uh, but some of the difficulties that come to mind for me um, with the traditionalist view are the attempts to harmonize uh, the Gospels. Uh, now, I think a lot can be harmonized, a lot. But there are some, so shall we say, um, pushed or difficult harmonizations. So one that comes to my own mind is uh, the death of Judas, and uh, was he, you know, hung on a tree, or did he uh, uh, roll down the hill? How, how was it that he died? So some of the traditional say, oh, well, that's easy, you know, <laughs> right? It, it's easy, yeah. They they would say, yeah, he first was hung on a tree, and then the rope broke, and he fell down a hill. Um, that seems to be a very pushed. Uh, difficult or pressed harmonization. And there are some others, uh, but like I said, I think a lot of things, perceived difficulties can be resolved through harmonizing, but I don't think all of them can be. And that, that's why I think the contextualist camp is superior to the traditionalist camp on inerrancy. Yeah, I think some of the bigger examples would be, for instance, the claim that the cock crowed six times at Peter's denials. And then that with a sum of amount, Jesus gave the version in Matthew, and then he gave a version in Luke, and he said both different things, switching out even the personal pronouns several times. And that is not found anywhere in the Gospels, and that is just, yeah. it, it, it pushes it to absurdity. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it really is, it boils down to these philosophical differences and how to interpret the scripture. And it's interesting to see the ways that the traditionalists are quick to borrow, if you will, from the contextualist camp. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, as the traditionalists view it as okay to think that God didn't create the world in six literal days. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> or, for instance, traditionalists recognize that um, 
when we read extended speeches in the text, especially in the book of Acts, Luke's recounting of them may not have been from his own eye or his own ear, but from someone else. And even if it was, it doesn't guarantee that those were the exact words that the person spoke uh, when they gave the speech. Yeah. It could Pe- it could be a summary. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, you could read that in less than a couple of minutes, and you have thousands of people convert on that day. I mean, if that was a pattern, hey, I've got a way to make church services a whole lot shorter. Now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so I find that the contextualist camp is the one that's most consistent. Um, it, it can still present these various ways of harmonizing because I think a lot of them can legitimately be harmonized uh, but I don't think all of them can and that's why the contextualist camp is superior to the traditionalist camp so and I hope we can spread the um, (laughs) the the word about the contextualist camp you know I I think a lot of people think it's uh, traditionalist inerrancy or Nothing, nothing at all. And that, in my mind, would be a false dichotomy. Uh, those aren't the only two options here. Uh, and, and I think especially for those uh, outside of the states who say, well, inerrancy is unnecessary or uh, you know, they just flatly reject inerrancy, to really offer to them the contextualist understanding of inerrancy. I think, I think a lot of those uh, traditionalist uh, deniers would – be open to hearing about the contextualist understanding. Well, we've had a very good discussion, discussed a lot of issues, but unfortunately it's time we start being things for code. So I'm curious if people have been interested in you for some strange reason, and they <laughs> want to find out more about you and uh, what you're doing and such, do you, do you have a way they can get in touch with you or anything like that, a website, whatever? Yeah, there's, there's a couple ways. Um, they could contact me through the apologetics.com website. Uh, I'm also on Facebook uh, and Twitter. My Twitter handle, uh, I think, is uh, TKJaros, so that's spelled T-K-J-A-R-O-S. Mm-hmm. And if you have any questions about uh, original sin or um, what the Eastern uh, Church is, at least today, calling more ancestral sin, their view, they're kind of contrasting it that way, though that's a new moniker, that's a new term that they've kind of come up with. Um, or if you're interested in uh, issues pertaining to the problem of evil, uh, some of the topics we didn't even hit on today uh, that interest me are the uh, supposed genocide accounts we read about in the scriptures mm-hmm. or the problem of the unevangelized. Mm-hmm. I would categorize that under uh, the problem of evil. Those topics I'm also quite interested in. Uh, or questions about inerrancy, uh, you know, feel free to contact me, and I'd I'd love to get in touch and and, and chat or answer your questions. And is there uh, any final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Uh, just to keep listening uh, to your podcast, Nick. It's it's really good. You have a lot of good speakers come on uh, your your show here, and um, you know you're doing some good work. So. Uh, have people keep on listening and donate too so it's really good what you're doing i I really appreciate that and i do thank you for coming on and hopefully we'll see you on here again a third time sometime hey that that would be great but don't bring me on a third time until you bring uh mike on or uh all those other great scholars yeah (laughs)
I'm just your uh, your go-to if if you're in a bind. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for having me on, Nick. No problem. And I can remind everyone that next week, Lynn Wilder is going to be our guest, the author of Unveiling Grace. It's going to be an excellent show talking about Mormonism.